All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about what is happening in Ukraine. We won't get into the uh, the Vilnius summit because we covered all of that in mm. a separate video. So let's just focus on uh, the actual situation in Ukraine, what's happening on the, uh, the front lines. Uh, maybe you want to talk about the state of the, uh, the Ukraine economy, yeah. if, if there even is an economy to no. talk about at this point. Uh, the, there, there is a successful offensive underway. There really is a successful offensive underway, and it's coming from the Russians. Yeah. And even Shoigu announced uh, the other day that the Russians are indeed uh, moving forward in the yeah. direction of, I believe, Liman. But also, it looks like we have some activity in Abdiyevka. On the Ukraine side, uh, Bakhmut, they're trying. Zaporozhye, they're trying. Rabotino, they're trying. Uh, Piatratki, I think they were treated with mm. horrendous losses. It's just not going well. But the Russians now are, uh, are, are, are making some moves, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, this is the, we, we may have reached a point where the Ukrainian offensive is becoming the Russian counteroffensive, because that's how it's starting to look. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the Ukrainians continue to launch these attacks on the southern fronts. The idea is to try to break through, uh, um, break the land bridge. I mean, that's presumably the rationale still break the land bridge advance towards the black sea cut off crimea this is the legend of what this offensive was supposed to be all about as we've discussed on many occasions they they haven't actually reached the big russian fortified lines all of the fighting that is continuing to happen continues to be well to the north of those fortified lines in the grey zone or zone of control that the Russians established ahead of them. And there have been more attacks. There was a lot of big attacks over the last couple of days um, by Ukrainian forces uh, trying to break through, to reach these front lines, not to actually break through the front lines themselves, but just to reach them. And it's been on the same level of intensity, it seems, as what was happening in the first two weeks of the offensive back in June. And the outcome has been exactly the same. And we see more Bradleys burning. We see more Leopard 2s burning. Some really grisly pictures, deeply distressing pictures, if you can find the stomach to look at them. And in fact, lots, not just a few of these pictures, lots of these pictures and the word is that on every one of these attacks has been repelled and that the Ukrainians have been pushed back um, in every place that they've launched these attacks at. And the place where they attacked first back in June, which is an area called the Vremevka Ledge, it seems that it's the Russians now who are on the attack there and who are starting to regain ground. I have to say the information is very sketchy and that may not be fully accurate. But anyway, the reports I've seen rather imply that. So the area where Ukraine has been conducting its major offensive, they they tried again. They tried hard. They tried hard because the Vilnius summit was underway. So they were perhaps hoping that they would achieve some kind of breakthrough to show to the people at Vilnius, and it didn't happen. It's ended disastrously, more losses, 
more Bradleys burning, more Leopard 2s burning, more Ukrainian soldiers killed. So the other place where they've been trying to attack is Artyomovsk, the former Bakhmut. Lots of stories of the Ukrainians pushing forward there. Um, they're making some bizarre claims. I mean, General Sirsky, who was the Ukrainian ground forces commander, who seems to treat Bakhmut, the whole area of Bakhmut battle, as his own private war. He doesn't seem to be engaged in anything else, even though technically he's supposed to be the overall commander of Ukraine's ground forces. Anyway, Sirsky is in command there. He made a claim that Bakhmut, as he calls it, is now under the fire control of the Ukrainian military. Even the Daily Telegraph in Britain was sceptical about that claim. The reports are that they've made no breakthroughs in any place. And in fact, they've been pushed back. And again, they've suffered extremely heavy losses. And this against what have up to now been second line Russian troops. Only they're now being re reinforced by the Chechen fighters, who are, of course, extremely tough and very effective troops. The Russians are. But that's the Ukrainian offensive. But as you rightly say, in other places, it is the Russians who are on the, t the attack. And Ukraine is facing what is starting to look like two operational crises at the same time. One is an important one at a place called Avdeevka. This is a town very close to Donetsk. This is where the big, this is the big, this is the place where the Ukrainian army group that was shelling Donetsk city ever since 2014, that was where they were based, was where they had their major concentration, that was where the artillery was. There's been lots of fighting around Avdeevka since March. The Russians began an offensive towards Avdeevka in March. Then in June, the Ukrainians counterattacked. The word now is all of those counterattacks have uh, failed. The Russians supposedly have brought the main road, in fact, the only road into Avdeevka, which the Ukrainians have been using under their fire control. In other words, they can shell Ukrainian troops and convoys that go into Avdeevka. And that was a about two days ago that there was that report. There's been further reports since then which suggest that Avdeevka is very, very close now to being fully encircled. So the Ukrainians have a, make a decision. Do they let their troops in Avdeevka get encircled and fight on to the end as happened in Mariupol, which is how it's starting to look? Do they pull those troops out, which would be the rational thing to do, but it would be inconsistent with what the Ukrainians mostly do? Or do they launch still more counterattacks, lose more men, more machines, trying to keep the corridors of supplies to Avdeevka open? And I suspect that's probably what the Russians would like them to do. So Avdeevka is turning into an operational crisis. But it's not the worst one, because the worst one is in the north, along the <clears throat> northern part of the front line. And uh, the Russians apparently have now entered a small town called Toretsk, which they're on the process of recapturing. 
they had previously controlled that in the summer. They're now moving increasingly close to Liman, Krasny Liman, as the Russians call it. And perhaps most critical of all, they're now apparently also very close to encircling Kupiansk, which um, before the Ukrainian counteroffensive of last autumn was the <clears throat> um, was the town from which the Russians administered the area of Kharkov region that they controlled. The Ukrainians captured uh, um, Kupiansk over the course of their um, counteroffensive of the autumn. It looks like Kupiansk is about to be attacked itself. The Russian artillery is shelling it. The civil administrators that Ukraine sent there have apparently all been evacuated. And it looks as if the Russians are working methodically towards reversing all the gains that Ukraine achieved in that counteroffensive of last autumn, at, by the way, very high cost. And of course, if the Russians do that, if they recapture Liman, and it becomes Krasny Liman again, if they capture Kupiansk, if they're able to advance beyond Kupiansk and retake places like Izium and Balaklaya, then I think that will be a moment when the penny will finally drop across Ukraine, that they are losing the war. Because that was the only big real victory that Ukraine has achieved over the course of this war, was that counteroffensive in Kharkov region in the autumn. And if it's reversed, if its outcome is reversed, then it's easy to see how despair will start to settle in. They'll start to say to themselves, the Russians are too strong, we cannot win, we are losing. It will be a major psychological blow coming on top of the failed offensive in the South. Yeah, it'll be hard for the Alevsky uh, media machine to, to hide that. I'd say, impossible. I'd, I'd, say, I'd say impossible. Yeah. I mean, they'll do what they They'll try. Do. They'll try. Well, what they, what they invariably do, <laughs> what they invariably do is that they, you know, they pretend long after a place has been captured that they still control it. <laughs> and, you know, you get the sort of yeah, denials, you get weeks off them. I don't, think you, I don't think Ukraine has ever formally admitted, for example, that he's lost back. Huh. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's that's a fact which people don't know. So they're fighting to recapture a place which they've never lost. <laughs> if you track things, if you get all your impressions of the war from what they themselves say, but you know, that's that you can only do that to a limited extent. Well, there are analysts who who actually believe that Bahmut is now encircled by by Syrsky and Ukraine. They actually believe it. Oh, I know. Which I mean. <laughs> You know, look, you, if <laughs> this propaganda is effective, it works. Oh, yes. And and they have the, the whole collective West media behind them. They have all of big tech behind them yeah. to, to propagate and distribute these uh, these fictions. So, you know, there are people that actually go with this. Yeah. But uh, sooner or later, the reality catches up. Absolutely. So um, what about the economic situation in uh, in Ukraine? Is there anything to talk about? Because that's that's important. It um, is. It, do you have any insights as to how how Ukraine is is doing as uh, as, as a functioning country? Functioning there is no, there is there is no economic situation to speak of in Ukraine. The entire country now functions 
purely on life support. Now, what is happening is that in Kiev itself, which is the capital, and to a certain extent in Lvov, the Ukrainian authorities are very anxious to preserve an appearance of normality. So if you, well, you can't fly there, you have to go there by train because the air, the airport is closed. But if you were to take the train to Kiev, you'd see a place where, you know, you can buy Louis Vuitton bags and, um, you know, find your Salvadori Ferragamo shoes and where the bars are open and the nightclubs are apparently extremely busy, where everything, you know, there's an appearance at some level of normal life, but it is purely based upon Western funding. The currency is stable because it's funded by the West. The salaries of the military and of the civil service are paid by the West. Ukraine gets continuous grants from the West now. The one thing the West is never short of is money. And as I said, the result is this appearance of economic activity, which is nothing behind it. Now, Ukraine did have an industrial base. To all intents and purposes, it's no longer functioning. Um, Ukraine had a thriving agriculture base. It still produces a certain amount of food, but following um, what looks like the imminent collapse of the grain deal on Monday, um, exporting food, which was another source of revenue, is going to become much more difficult and will probably stop, which will throw Ukraine into dependence upon the West even more. And as I understand it, outside of a few privileged areas, Kiev, Vov, perhaps one or two other places, um, living standards are crashing. And of course, if you're a, if you're a man, you always now face the risk of being conscripted. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's shift gears a little bit to wrap up this video. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask your thoughts. I don't even know if you've seen it. The reports from um, the BBC. Uh, I know the BBC picked it up. Um, I think the New York Times may have picked it up as well, where there was a Russian um, MP. Yeah. Um, I believe he was like the chair of the defense for, yeah. for the Duma, or, or he had some position in, in the defense committee at, uh, at the Duma, and a reporter asked him about Sudovikin. Yeah. And uh, he was like, he's Sudovikin is on rest. That was pretty much what he said. I'm paraphrasing what he said. But it was a very quick exchange. He said Sudovikin is on rest. And then the MP walked off. And obviously the BBC in their article, they're, uh, they're claiming many things. But uh, mostly they're saying that a lot of this is connected to the Wagner uh, mutiny and Sudovikin's um, very close friendship with uh, uh, Prigozhin. What are your quick thoughts on No, I, I, on I, I don't take any of this particularly seriously. I mean, if, if Surovikin is in trouble or if he's been, you know, put on rest, well, the first thing to say is, not arrest, by the way, that he's resting, that, that is what the story was. Um, can I just say... If he's that, resting, he's, he's on a break. break. He's, he's on, on a break. break. He's yeah. on a break. I mean, well, people do take breaks from time to time, but I, I would be surprised if that was the case. And Regardless, what we see is the, you know there doesn't seem to be any slackening of energy or activity on the Russian front lines. So clearly, there's been no real disruption in the chain of command. Um, they've been endlessly picking up, p 
picking on this story of Suravikin. Suravikin, as far as I can see, he came out during the Wagner affair. He published a very powerful video telling the Wagner troops, go back to your positions. He had, you know, a holster with a gun. And then he vanished. And that's very much like him. I mean, he was invisible largely before, and he's become invisible again. I don't really see any evidence to support these uh, claims. Um, um, and to my mind, they're just picking. They're just trying to find something to uh, try and keep the story of Wagner going. Now, a much more important story about Wagner is not the Suravigan affair, which, as I said, I, I don't take especially seriously. It is the fact that on the 29th of June, Putin actually met with Prigozhin and most importantly with the commanders of Wagner. And the there seems to be some kind of process underway. Wagner has given back all of its heavy weapons all to their, all yeah. of their heavy weapons. Thousands. Thousands, exactly. Thousands so this has been an ongoing affair. The commanders apparently pledged loyalty to Putin. They reassured him that they are his soldiers, his faithful soldiers, that whatever it was that happened, you know, they were not absent. They were certainly not uh, targeting him. There's rumours, by the way, which have been picked up by Helmer, that um, Putin told them that the eventual plan is to keep going all the way to Lvov. There are rumours to that effect. I just report them and I think they're probably, you know, they might even be true. And it looks as if these commanders are trying to stay in the war. <laughs> There's still some frictions between them and the leadership of the Ministry of Defence, though Putin has made it absolutely clear that he, you know, Shoigu's and Gerasimov's position is not up for negotiation. But um, they still want to stay in the war. They don't want to be sent to Belarus. They still want to participate in the war in some way. So if Putin is prepared to talk to people like that, to the actual commanders of Wagner, with, you know, Prigozhin in the room, why would he want to come after Suravikin? It doesn't make any kind of sense to me, yeah. given that Suravikin himself came out publicly and opposed what Wagner was doing. Yeah, they're, they've returned all of their military hardware, Wagner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to go to Belarus. No. They want to uh, remain and and fight. Shoigu is, is in place, yeah. in command. Uh, Yerasimov, he's uh, he's in command. We saw videos of him as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, we'll end it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, and Rockfin. And go to the Duran shop 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.